take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke. Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So, Cass. Yes, MJ. Remember we did a lead paint episode like a long while back. Yes. Oh, so a long way back. Also a long way back. Yeah. And remember how we we were having a discussion about, oh, maybe we should do just an episode on lead. But then we quickly realized that lead was it's too big. It's huge. Right. So that's what we yeah, did. Too big of a topic for just one. Just one episode. So we did lead paint. And my original thought was to have leaded gas be a bonus episode that comes after lead paint. But then I dug into leaded gas. And it was too juicy to be its own bonus episode. We're, so we're doing it here. It's get ready for a wild ride. All right. So so spicy things go into public health plus and juicy things are Become main episodes. everything is public health. Got it. Okay. Correct. So you mentioned this in your episode on lead paint already. Like lead is in not just in paint, but it's a bunch of things. One of the things that lead is in is in gasoline or fuel. And lead a gas, it was... As much as we know about its negative health consequences, when it was first introduced, it was kind of like a miracle additive to gasoline because one of the things that piston engines or just engines in general, what they're afraid of is this thing called knocking. And please don't ask me to explain what knocking is, but just know that in order for an engine to operate properly, it needs to spark the fuel at the right timing. So it needs to, there needs to be a rhythmic combustion, right? So it it reaches like optimal piston pushing power. It needs to combust at the right time. And knocking is basically when the gas is not combusting at the right time. So it's not optimal output for the engine. That's essentially what knocking is. That's, that's all I know. Right. And it increases wear and tear on the engine parts and can make the engine not last as long as it would otherwise. Right. So knocking, not optimal, but also not good for the engine. So they were desperate in trying to find a additive that essentially prevents knocking. And leaded gas, or I should be more specific of what the compound is, the compound is called tetraethyl lead. And when they discovered or manufactured this compound, tetraethyl lead, from now on, I'm just going to refer to it as lead. <laughs> Leaded gas. Yeah, I think that's that's good. Yeah. yeah. And they added the gas and they discovered that it was very effective at preventing knocking. So less engine wear and tear and the engine output is optimized because it's combusting at the right time. Now, as you mentioned in your episode, we knew that lead was an unhealthy thing as early as when did you say it as early as like centuries ago? Yeah, centuries ago, hundreds of years ago, people were like, ooh. That guy's a little bit weird. He spent too much time around lead, too much lead paint, you know, licking the paintbrush when they were doing art and some other things. So yeah, it's been known for a long, long time. Right. So lead has been known to be unhealthy and we can imagine how lead paint gets into our system because we touch it and maybe there's dust particles in the air. Um, How do you think leaded gas gets into people? Inhalation. Right, because how gas works, essentially it feeds into the engine and you combust it. Yeah, you burn it. And when you combust it, it turns into air, smoke, whatever. And that smoke has to go somewhere. 
And where does it go? It goes out the tailpipe and into the air. So leaded gas, very popular since the 1920s. It's pretty much when it was discovered. It's been implemented in gas pretty much everywhere because it was such a great anti-knocking agent. And as a result, cars and engines, airplane engines, but pretty much anything with an engine starts pumping out lead in the air since the 1920s. And we knew this. This was not a mystery at all. And you know how in some cases there's like industry trying to downplay the risk effect of lead or risk effect of a certain substance. They were doing that. But the thing is, lead was just such a well-known hazardous compound that even as much downplaying as they could play. Right. If we throw back to the leaded paint episode for a moment, we talked about how there was publicly available data on the harms associated with lead in paint, but in other things as well. So it's not like some of the other topics we've talked about where there were super secret studies happening and you know nobody knew that this was a big harmful thing. People were actively trying to downplay it, as you said, but It wasn't like people didn't know and couldn't sort of draw conclusions from the data that was available. Right. But, you know, (laughs) we were very late on banning leaded gas. And we weren't late, MJ. What were we? We were, what were we? We were tardy to the party. Tardy to the (laughs) party. The United States were tardy to the party when it comes to banning leaded gas. But, and this this was surprising to me, like, do you remember when lead paint was banned? It was officially banned in the 1970s. Right, 70s. Now, would you expect leaded gas to be banned before, around that time, or after? Well, I mean, I, I think our listeners at home would probably assume that it would have been around that time, but I know better, so I won't, I won't spoil your answer. <laughs> Yeah, so this surprised me. I thought if we made the effort to ban leaded paint and we know that lead is bad, like surely the reasonable thing to do... Who are you calling Shirley? (laughs) Surely the reasonable thing to do would be to ban leaded gas too or just lead, maybe have some tougher regulation on lead. But leaded gas was not banned in the US officially until 1996, so mid-90s. Right, okay, so just one point of clarification. The expectation that governments are going to be acting reasonably and in the best interest of its populace is not always an accurate assumption, right? Like we can't always be dependent because there are really powerful business lobbies that want to keep things going. So as much as I agree with you that, yes, we shouldn't have waited so long, we can't always expect the best from our governments. What a depressing thought. Wow, that's really sad. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's it's true. So here's the thing that made things like slightly better. So the United States officially banned leaded gas in commercial cars in 1996. You know how in leaded paint, the other countries were very quick to act when it comes to leaded paint? Yeah, decades before. Other countries were also slow. Like when it comes to banning leaded gasoline. So Canada didn't ban it until 1990. And Europe didn't officially ban it until the year 2000, although it was pretty much phased out at that point. So, All right. So maybe maybe it's not fair to say we were tardy to the party if everyone was showing up around the same time. But I think everybody was slow to act on this issue. Everyone was slow to act. And you can kind of see why, because... At that point in our society or the world in general has been so reliant on engines of any kind that it's not as easy to ban this as banning like leaded paint. 
Wasn't there something related to engine design also, like the catalytic converter? Didn't that make, it didn't work as well with leaded gas and that also prompted the phasing out of leaded gas? Right. So perfect segue, Cass. You're very good at this. Oh, <laughs> and And <laughs> so if it was just like that, like, oh, we were, you know, we banned leaded gas very late, this would have been a bonus. The reason why this is a full episode is I looked into why leaded gas was banned and the history of how that ban and phase out worked. This is what made it like full episode territory. So we knew leaded gas was a bad thing. Now, naturally, unless there is an incentive for industry to act, they pretty much won't act. Even though we knew about all the negative health effects of leaded gas and what it does when it's released into air and we breathe it in, there was very little momentum in terms of, you know, maybe switching to a different fuel source or maybe coming up with a better engine design or a better fuel chemicals that could help us phase out leaded gas until the Clean Air Act of 1970. When the Clean Air Act of 1970 passed, it regulated a lot of things. And one of the things that it regulated was hydrocarbons in the air. Now, in order for cars to meet this standard of hydrocarbons and methanes and all other types of gas, they needed to redesign their engine and needed to redesign their cars. Note that the Clean Air Act does not directly regulate lead, leaded gas. Just vehicle emissions. Just vehicle emission. But as a result of that, car manufacturers had to come up with a way to meet those standards. And their solution was this thing called the catalytic converter. I'm not a car guy. Are you a car guy? <laughs> I mean... I know some basic things about cars. Do you know what a catalytic converter is? So my recollection, I hope I don't embarrass my dad right now. (laughs) It helps process the fuel more efficiently so that you're burning off more of the harmful pieces before they get released as an emission from the tailpipe. Okay, so that makes sense then. Is that right? I don't know. (laughs) Wait. It's an exhaust emission control device. It reduces toxic gases and pollutants in exhaust gas from an internal combustion engine into less toxic pollutants by catalyzing a redux reaction. So I think basically I got that right. So they made the catalytic converter and they pretty much added to cars. I don't want to say overnight, but they because they need to meet the standards, they added to cars pretty much very quickly. All cars had catalytic converters, like roughly around the time that after the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. Now, Leaded gas does not work well with catalytic converters. I think it damages them in some way, but just the gist is if a car has a catalytic converter and it has leaded gas, it's not a good thing. So as a result, very rapidly, all car manufacturers had to put catalytic converters in their cars and then they slapped this unleaded fuel only sticker on the car. I was just going to mention that sticker. So when I was a kid, I remember seeing these, you know, when you open the fuel door, it would say unleaded fuel only. And I remember asking my dad, why does it say unleaded fuel only? Like all the pumps say unleaded fuel. Like where where do you even get leaded fuel from? Do they still put those stickers on? I actually don't even know. I've either totally like blocked them out because they're just a thing no one pays attention to anymore, or maybe they don't put them there. I don't even know. I want to go out and check my car. The stickers has been largely phased out. And if there are still left, they're pretty much like small print now, if there are any. But the large stickers that you're thinking of, that has been phased out. What people are more worried about is if you put diesel in a petrol car. Right. Pretty much for cars, like commercial cars, it is impossible for you to find leaded gas now. Like all gas for commercial cars is pretty much unleaded. Anyway, so the point I was trying to make is because they had to meet the clean air standard, they had to make a catalytic converter But the catalytic converter did not work well with leaded gas. So they say overnight, roughly overnight, 
no more leaded gas in cars. The Clean Air Act never regulated lead. It was an indirect process. And over a span, like a really short span of a few years, pretty much all gas pumps, they have to have unleaded gas as an option because pretty much all the cars are now requiring only unleaded gas. This is reminding me of our conversation around iodized salt. And we didn't end up with regulation. We ended up with one sort of major company putting iodine in their salt and then other companies being concerned that the market would sort of phase them out or that they wouldn't be allowed to make what they wanted to make. And so they very rapidly started putting iodine in their salt. And this just was making me think of that connection that yet another market response, market-driven response that is leading companies to voluntarily make changes Otherwise, people aren't going to buy their cars. Right. So this is exactly what happened. The market changed long before the laws did. And this was a case of pretty much total market change because of the standard of catalytic converters. They Pretty much no commercial cars can take leaded gas. So every car had the unleaded gas sticker. Gas pump pretty much flipped themselves within a few years. And way before the 1996 leaded gas ban, you could not find leaded gas for commercial cars. Don't you think that's a wild story? It is a, I'm not surprised by sort of how the the twistiness of how it took us to get there. But I will say I'm glad we got there. And I think it's a really intriguing example yet again of how we can make change in a variety of ways, looking at population health, looking at environmental health, which is certainly part of public health, thinking about the environment. And just, I think it's a cool example of how looking at data and finding different strategies to improve health can work out. But it didn't work out for everyone, did it, MJ? No, it didn't work out for everyone. So this story had two twists, (laughs) which is why it deserves a full episode. So the 1996 leaded gas ban, when it came, it was more in name than it was in effect because the effect was already there because of the market pressure of the catalytic converters. Pretty much there was no leaded gas for commercial cars. So it was mostly just to, you know, the final seal on the document to say... Nail in the coffin. Nail in the coffin. <laughs> seal on the document. <laughs> I was trying to make my own <laughs> expressions. <laughs> the final nail on the coffin of like, okay, leaded gas banned for commercial cars but only for commercial cars. Right. Leaded gas is not completely banned. You can still find leaded gas used in the United States and many other countries for things like small airplanes, off-road vehicles, racing vehicles, and farming equipment. So some sort of large industrial engine like farming equipment. It is not completely banned. We still use leaded gas to this day, although not for cars. And Obviously, leaded gas has negative health effects, but but you might be thinking that, okay, so maybe it's not completely banned, but there must be, you know, some use for leaded gas that it wasn't banned. And I'm sure those use of leaded gas are not impacting people's health in a way that cars used to. And that is not true. Well, if I don't know if folks live close to small plane airports, but there's one not too far from my house. I mean, it's a couple of miles away, but when planes are taking off and landing, they're going over the top of businesses, residences, grocery stores, like, so their exhaust is coming down in populated areas, right? It's not coming down in the middle of nowhere, because we're thinking about farms who use crop dusters or whatever, like, I regularly see small planes flying around. And if those small planes are using leaded fuel, 
then that exhaust is exposing all of those folks to leaded gas emissions. Yeah. So you live relatively close to a small plane airport, but you said you were still a few miles away, right? Yeah, it's probably three, four miles away, maybe. Right. So in San Jose, there is a small airport called Reed Hellview Small Airport, and it serves only small planes. And due to the design of the neighborhoods and design of the city, and we mentioned uh, environmental racism a few episodes ago, there are people who live right next to the airport. And when I say right next to the airport, I mean some houses share a fence with said small airplane airport. And they have found that the children and people living here has lead levels higher than that of people in Flint, Michigan during the water crisis. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that's just so much exposure. Yeah. And as you can tell, the people living there are not happy about this. They are also predominantly minorities and they are predominantly low-income people. So they, they're having a very, very tough time petitioning the city to remove this small aircraft airport from their neighborhoods. Well, question, mm-hmm. do they have to remove the airport from the neighborhood? Can't they just ban Ban leaded leaded gas gas. in small airplanes. I don't even think it has to be a legislation. The airport can put in a policy that says you can only use unleaded gas. We often think about laws and sort of regulation, like big P policy, right? But there's little p policy, you know, the different things that organizations can do, rules that they can put into place. Mm -hmm. And we know that voluntary standards can be effective if there's incentive. And so if you want to fly out of this airport then you can only use unleaded gas in your plane. You are such a good public health professional. I didn't even realize that was an option, but that's totally an option. It could be a organizational level thing where they just said, yeah, you can't fly with leaded gas here anymore. So I guess one important consideration, I know nothing about airplanes, small planes, anything like that. So this could be showing my lack of knowledge, but is there a reason why small airplanes have to have leaded gasoline. If I'm remembering correctly, when we were first talking about this story about the airport, like some of the pilots were like, well, why can't we just use unleaded gas? Like, but I think the airport is where the gas was provided. So like the airport would have to change. But my recollection was the engines of the planes didn't require leaded gas. That's just what was available to them. Am I, am I misremembering? My recollection is there's something to do with the engine. Uh, let me do a control find. Larger jets, they're newer, so they don't require leaded fuel. Right. Although unleaded fuel is not as widely available, some California airports offer their product to their pilots. Okay. Right. So the county could choose to support its constituents and protect the health and safety of the people around the airport by bringing in this available unleaded fuel, but instead they just want to close the airport because they're interested in developing it into something else. Ah, politics. So I was correct that there's no reason that they can't use unleaded gas. Boom. Redacted. Nailed it. Nice. Good job, Cass. I'm a baller. But yeah, so the conclusion of the story is leaded gas is not completely banned. It is still used in small airplanes and some other type of engines. And this has, as we see from this case in San Jose in Reed Hillville's small airport, this has direct effect on people's health. And this ties into the environmental justice episode that we did. Are these, you know, 
rich white people living next to this airport? No, right? <laughs> I need to say this with more tack. The folks who are living in the area around the airport are not the types of folks to whom politicians normally pay attention because they have the social cohesion and collective efficacy to effectively advocate for themselves. They're usually the groups that politicians ignore, and they continue to suffer environmental harms and are exposed to environmental hazards because people are not paying attention to what they say about their health and well-being. Um, they're far more interested in business owners or... Small airplanes pilots, I guess. I mean, some of the, the small airplane pilots, they were advocating to change the fuel. Right. That's true. It sounds like the county wanted to shut the airport down because developers were interested in turning it into something else and making people drive 40 miles to go to a different airport. Right. Politics and money. Politics and money. Right. But this, I feel like that news story, which we'll put the link in the episode description, was like a perfect example of how something like leaded gas can really affect the health of people living near those sources. And they said, yeah, they tested the children's living in, in that neighborhood and they have lead levels on par, if not exceeding those people living in Flint, Michigan. And that is not good. So I think one of the main takeaways from today's episode is... We've talked a lot about voting, obviously, which is important. We've talked a lot about talking with your elected officials to pass policies, support policies, et cetera, sort of at the state, local, state, or federal level. But I think today is one of the first times where we've talked about different things that organizations can do, like a company can do to be responsive to the market or to self-regulate to try to reduce some of the harms, which is another tool that we have in public health. It's not just about talking to elected officials. It can be talking to business owners, corporations, um, asking them to change their practices. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that perspective up because I totally forgot that public health can be effective at many levels, not just federal laws. But you know, if you can encourage a particular company or, or a particular group to do something that has immediate impact on the people living around in that area. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. And if you're interested in seeing any of my gluten-free baking creations, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.